You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Uh, So go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 41 this evening, and we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, And as we do so, we come to the account of Jesus calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Now, this text is one of the most beloved accounts in the Gospels. Uh, It's been one of the most famous and memorable passages in the whole Bible for all of church history. Uh, It's a text that a good preacher could preach multiple sermons on in a row, and it never be dull. But you guys are only going to get one. Um, There's a joke in there some of you guys missed. Uh, It's a a text that, in all seriousness, it's a text that no matter when you read it throughout your life, or how many times you study it, or how many times you meditate upon its truth, it's always fresh. And it's always fresh, I think, because it's always easy to see its relevance. Now, all of Scripture is relevant, but this passage in particular really opens itself up to us pretty readily and how it's relevant for us today. Um, And that's because it's a text that reminds us of who Jesus is and what he can do, what he has done, and the fact that he actually cares for his people. So tonight, I hope to encourage you from this text. Uh, my, My prayer is that you would see Jesus as the mighty God that he is, and that your hearts would be inflamed and your affection for him would grow, and that flowing from that, that great affection that I hope to stoke in your hearts, or rather that I hope the Spirit of God stokes in your heart through my weak preaching, that flowing from that you would be reminded and encouraged to trust in Jesus, not only for eternity, but for your life now. So to that end, I've divided this sermon into three headings. Uh, and I believe these headings are, are, are some main points that God intends for us to see from this passage. And they're fairly simple. Here they are. Uh, the first is Jesus is God. Very simple, but man, there's a lot behind that. Jesus is God. Second, our God, Jesus will not abandon us in the storm. Third, Jesus invites us to trust in him. So may the Lord bless us now as we turn to his word. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Let's read. On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before you this evening humbly asking that you would speak to our hearts through your word. 
you know that we are weak and that many of us are currently in the middle of trials. So we ask that you would give us a glimpse of yourself in this passage and that you would put peace in our hearts as we contemplate your greatness and your trustworthiness and your compassion for us. Please, God, teach us who you are as we bow before your inerrant and infallible word. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. So something uh, before we begin, a um, little bit of uh, groundwork. When we study the miracles of Jesus, I believe that we have to start with a presupposition. And don't worry, it's a biblical one, right? It's a biblical presupposition. And that presupposition that we have to start with, if we're going to study the miracles of Christ, is this. In the Bible, miracles are called signs, wonders, and mighty acts. Now, signs are always meant to signify something. Signs always point to something greater than themselves. Like whenever you see a sign that says, Portsmouth, 30 miles ahead, that sign is pointing you to something greater. Not much greater because it's Portsmouth, but it's pointing you to something greater, right? It's pointing you to something bigger than just the sign, right? Now, miracles, we call them miracles. Again, the Bible likes to use the word signs for them. Miracles point to something greater than the miracle itself. They're meant to point us beyond the miracle and to some greater spiritual truth. So the presupposition we have to start with is that every miracle points to some spiritual truth. Now that does not mean that we look for meaning behind every single little detail in a miracle. I'm sure you've all heard sermons like that. I, don't, I think that that's kind of foolish. Um, but we can look at big themes in each miracle and see spiritual principles and truths in the big themes that they're all pointing to. And this miracle that we just read, the first nature miracle in this gospel, is no different. God intends for us to see beyond the physical miracle into something deeper. And I think that there's a few truths for us to see here this evening. And the first truth that we're going to consider in this passage is our first heading. It's the fact that Jesus is God. And to do that, what I'm going to do is just walk you through the majority of this text so that you can see the magnitude of really what happened that day. Because sometimes, I was listening to Devotee Bauckham preach a sermon earlier, and it's the te- he said that it's the text that we are most familiar with, that that's usually a very dangerous thing. Because when we're really familiar with something, we've usually missed something, or we're misremembering, or we're not really analyzing the text as deeply as we should. We've not thought about it real well, because, yeah, I already know that passage. So let's look through this. Our text starts in verse 35 saying, on that day. Now some context for you. This is the same day, and I'm sure you're getting sick of me saying this as we're going through Mark. This is the same day that Jesus has been preaching the parables of the kingdom of God. It's the same day that the Pharisees accused him of being in league with the devil and doing his miracles by the power of Satan. This is the same day that his own earthly family called him crazy. They said he is out of his mind. It's been a long day for Jesus, right? It's been a long day, and now the day is coming to a close. And as evening came, Jesus tells his disciples to get in the boat. If you'll remember at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus gets in a boat, pushes offshore a little bit, and begins to teach because the, the lake with the surrounding land around it kind of became a natural amphitheater. So Jesus is already in a boat, and he tells his disciples to get in and sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is the width of the Sea of Galilee, about six to eight mile trip. Um, So this is a sundown, nighttime setting on the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a lake, uh, after a long day for Jesus doing ministry and debating with ungodly people. And Jesus wants to take off immediately. 
right? Verse 36 tells us that the disciples took him with, took him with them in the boat just as he was. Now, real quick, there is no spiritual take Jesus just as he is kind of meaning here, though I'm sure someone has preached that sermon at some point. Uh, it, it just means that Jesus didn't get out of the boat. That's what that means. He's already in the boat. He didn't get out of the boat. He didn't run home to get clean clothes or grab food or do anything like that. He told his disciples, let's go. And they got in the boat and immediately set out for the other side of the lake. Now, real quick, something I want you to see uh, from verses 35 and 36. This whole event was Jesus' idea. This whole thing. Jesus is the one who tells the disciples to get in the boat and go across to the other side of the lake. This is all his idea. Jesus is orchestrating this whole thing. This coming storm is not an accident or a surprise to the Lord Jesus. I'm sure some of you are already seeing a spiritual implication of that. Don't get ahead of me. We'll get there. He's setting his disciples up, right? He's setting this whole stage so that his disciples might see a great display of Jesus' power and his authority over the creation. So not only the calming of the sea, but also the foreordination of the storm comes from Jesus' sovereign power. This is all his idea. And Jesus is going to put himself on display for the purpose of stirring up faith in his people. Verse 37, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now, I think that our English translation here is kind of an understatement. A great windstorm arose. This is a huge storm, right? Great windstorm. Uh, it's it's a, literally a mega storm. It's huge. The, the word translated great windstorm can legitimately be used in Greek to refer to a hurricane, a great windstorm. It seems as if all hell is broken loose on the Sea of Galilee. This is intense. And the storm just came out of nowhere. It was calm. They're sailing to the other side at the command of Jesus, and then, bam, this hurricane-like storm comes upon them out of nowhere. Now, now this wasn't altogether unnatural to happen on the Sea of Galilee. Even to this day, uh, if you were to go to Israel, because of its geographic location, the Sea of Galilee is prone to frequent and harsh storms that seem to come out of nowhere, right? It, it just happens. Again, there's mountains around it. Cold air rushes down onto the lake. There's hot air coming off the lake. Boom, you get windstorms. Pretty common. But just because this happens often does not take away from the terror of being caught in the middle of a storm like this. Put yourself there for a moment. Now, I don't do this very often, but try to put yourself there for a moment. You're on a 25-foot boat, a wooden boat, a first-century wooden boat. And I'm not saying they didn't know how to make them, but they're not quite as safe as ours today. You're on a 25-foot wooden boat, not a ship, but a boat. You're on the water, probably three or four miles out from the shore. You're not swimming back in the dark, and a great tempest with hurricane-like winds descends upon you. Imagine the water's hitting you in the, or the water is hitting you in the face because of the wind. The wind was, would be blowing so furiously that the sound is deafening and you can't hear anything over the roar of the wind. The boat is rocking with intensity. The waves are breaking into the boat is what the text tells us. You might not be able to see much, but you can feel the water pulling up around your feet. And as you look, you can make out the waves crashing into the boat 
crashing on the boat all around you. You can feel the boat go up in the front as it rides a wave and then crashes back down just in time for you to see that you're about to hit another wave head on. Again, you can't hardly see, you can't hardly hear. All seems to be lost and a watery grave seems to be what is coming next since the storm threatens to sink the boat that you're in. It's a horrible picture. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. (laughs) Verse 38, Jesus is asleep. Through all of this horrible storm, there is Jesus in the back of the boat asleep with his head on a pillow. What a picture. It always makes me laugh a little bit. The Bible's kind of funny sometimes. A mighty storm that threatens the lives of everyone on the sea, and yet here is the Lord Jesus sound asleep with his head on a pillow. Now I want to make a note here real quick. It's, it's, it's fitting for us, especially because it's Advent. This is a great reminder of the humanity of Jesus. A great reminder of his humanity. He was tired. He needed rest. And to be able to sleep through a storm like this is a sign of complete exhaustion. Jesus is beaten and tired after a day like this. He needs sleep. He's truly God, as we're going to see, made very clear here in just a moment. But we must never forget that he is truly man. He is the God-man, completely unique. No one like him. Very human at the same time, in every way that we are, except without sin. But as Jesus slept, his disciples were panicking. They weren't about to let him keep sleeping. Verse 38 says, And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They wake Jesus up in a complete panic. They're desperate for him to do something. Do something! You can imagine the cries of the disciples on the ship, or on the boat, rather. Now, I don't think that they had any idea of what Jesus was going to do. I really don't. I don't think they had any clue of what he was going to do. I don't think that they really understood the depth of his identity until after his resurrection from the dead. I don't don't think they had any clue that he was going to stop the storm. But they did know enough. And they did have enough faith to wake Jesus up. They knew he could do something. And that he's the only person in the boat who could do anything about the situation that they're in. So they woke him. And what shocked me as I studied it... As they woke him, they were rude to him. They rebuked him. Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? Again, whenever the Gospels record something for us, it's always a very shortened version of the event. Do you not care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're going to die? Why don't you do anything? What are you doing back here asleep? Wake up! Do something! The insolence of the disciples. Again, in their desperation, they're human beings. They're terrified. But how, how dare they do this to him? We'll get to this more later, but how dare they ask him a question like that? Of course he cares. He's with them, isn't he? I want to take a note here again just because it's Advent season. I want to take advantage of this. Note the humility of Jesus. He's humble. As we're about to see, he is the sovereign God of all things, and yet he allows himself to be spoken to that by human beings that he created. And then in spite of them being rude to him, and accusing him of not caring, he rescues them anyway. He could have rescued himself out of the storm and left them to die for their insolence, but he didn't. He was kind to them. He's humble and meek and saved his people. So remember the humility and humiliation of Jesus. So veiled in his humanity was his deity that creatures would disrespect him and talk to him like this. 
But as I said, in spite of their sinful rebuke, Jesus shows them mercy. And he acts on their behalf. Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now we read this verse especially, and we glance over what exactly is being said here. Right? We, we, we've heard it so much we forget how amazing this is. Just track with me here. Jesus wakes up and speaks a word. He speaks to the wind and the sea and says literally, be muzzled. Right? He says, shut up. Be quiet. Silence. Peace. Be still. And it was. And it was. Put a, put a period on the end of that sentence. It was. He spoke it and it came to pass. Everything on the Sea of Galilee stopped immediately. There was no more wind. So again, keep that picture in your mind of how things were prior to the Lord Jesus saying anything. And everything stops. There's no more wind. There are no more waves. There is no more storm. Everything goes deafeningly silent. The idea here, idea here is a mega calm. Mark's using a bit of wordplay. There was a mega storm, and now there is a mega calm. This is not, this, is, this blew me away a bit studying this. I never caught this. This is not a gradual dying down of the storm. That would be a naturally occurring event, right? It could be a coincidence if Jesus stood up and said, peace be still, and then slowly the storm began to ebb away. Mark's point in recording this is to teach us that this is a supernatural act of the Lord Jesus. Usually when a storm dies down, the wind gradually lets up, and the waves continue to rock for e even hours. But not this. There is instantaneous peace on the sea. The lake turned to glass, as it were. The second that the word came from the Savior's lips... I don't believe that there was even a ripple left on the water or a breeze left in the air. It was as if, and again, I can't get this through to you maybe because I, I, I might not be that good with words. It was as if all the air got sucked out of the Sea of Galilee the moment that the Lord Jesus gave the command to the wind and waves. A great tempest, roaring wind, silence at the word of Christ. It's chilling. As I contemplated this, you know I'm not one for emotion most of the time, but... I got goosebumps thinking about that, right? This awful storm and then great calm. Nothing moves. This is astounding. And what exactly happened here? I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly what happened. The creator of the wind and waves spoke, and the creation obeyed its master. That's what happened. The king of glory gave a command and the creation that is subject, subjected to him submitted to his reign. The sovereign God of all the universe said a word and his infallible almighty word came to pass. This is one of the clearest pictures of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's simple, right? It's simple, but it's mind-blowing, right? Who can tell nature what to do? It's a, it's a simple point. No mere human being can do such a thing. Right? Seriously, i got a challenge for you. Next time that it's raining outside, I dare you, go outside, look up at the sky, and say, Stop! I command you to stop. Do you know what will happen? You'll get wet and embarrassed. That's what will happen if you do that. Right? No mere man can control the weather. 
No mere human being can tell the waves and the wind what to do, but Jesus can, because he is no mere man. He is Almighty God come in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is, as Mark says in chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Only the Creator can control the creation. This is a truth uttered all over the Bible. And that's what we just witnessed in the text. As John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 3, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. It was through Him that all things were created. Paul reminds us of this again in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by Him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. It was Jesus who, as Job tells us, said to the waters at creation, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. It was Jesus' voice that David wrote about in Psalm 29 saying, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. It is only God who can still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Psalm 65, 7. It can only be said of God, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 89, verse 9. It is only said of God, Then they cried to you, as we read in our call to worship. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Psalm 107. That's what we just saw Jesus do. And why could he do it? Because he is the sovereign God of all things. God Almighty. Get a good look at him. For what we're getting ready to talk about, your personal storms, the trials of life and all that, you must have a good look at Jesus or you will despair. Look at this Christ. Behold him with the eye of faith, the Son of God, God incarnate. He is the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of everything who by a word commands the creation. This is the one we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. Sometimes we forget that. We forget his great power and his great majesty. But we mustn't do that. The Jesus with whom we have to do, the Jesus we worship, the Jesus who is with us through trials, the Jesus we read about in Scripture is no less than almighty God in human flesh. So hold him high in your hearts and exalt him. He is God. And we need to know that. He's God. And now we come to our second heading. Our God, Jesus, will not abandon us in the storm. The great and mighty sovereign God who is highly exalted and above all things, who rules over everything by the word of his power, cares for us. Transcendent and yet humble. What God is there like this? There is no God like our God. He acts on our behalf to help us. He spares our lives. He rescues us. 
and we see this truth that he cares for us and he rescues us and spares our lives, we see this, first of all, in the fact that this miracle, before it serves us as a picture of what Christ does for us in our trials and who Jesus is in the midst of our storms or whatever, the first thing we have to see is how this miracle serves us as a picture of what Jesus has come into the world to do. He came into the world to save his people. This miracle shows us, it's almost a parable-like miracle. It shows us that Jesus as God is powerful to save us from the death that we deserve. Think about it, and you'll see the picture here in the miracle. The storm threatened the lives of his disciples. Had they been on their own out at sea, there would have been no hope for them, and there would have been nothing but certain death. But then Jesus rises to action to save them so that they may live. And no one but the Son of God could have done it. No one less than God could have saved them from the certain death that hung before them. This miracle foreshadows the work of Christ. It teaches us that Jesus saves us from the storm that is the wrath of God. He saves us from the certain death that we deserve because of our sins. He has not abandoned his people to die in the midst of that storm. Rather, he has died for his people to save them from it. He has undergone the floodwaters of the wrath of God. Jesus was plunged under the waves of God's fury over sin. He endured the storm of God's hatred for our sins in our place. And by his cross, the Lord Jesus spoke, Peace, be still. And there was a great calm in the Godhead toward those for whom Christ has died. This miracle points us to the fact that Jesus is the great rescuer and savior of his people. And it reminds us that nobody but him could have done it because he alone is God. And as Jonah tells us, salvation is of the Lord. Truly, he cares for us. He's calmed the storm of the wrath of God for all those who come to him in faith. He cares. He cares. Or we can do this. If Jesus can save his disciples from physical death by literally controlling the cosmos then surely he can save your soul by his person and work because he is God. He has cared for us immensely in that he saved us and granted us eternal life by faith in him. And listen, we're going to go from the greater to the lesser now. Since Jesus has cared for us in that way, since he has cared for us to save us from the storm of God's wrath, will he not also care for us in the lesser storms of life? I think this is a big point that we can carry away from this miracle. First, we have to see what Jesus saves us from, the biggest thing being the wrath of God. Will he not also care for us in the midst of the storm? If Jesus cares enough to save us from certain spiritual death, surely he will care for us in the midst of lesser trials. And we're going to camp out here for the rest of our time together. The rest of this is heavy. Not that it's all not been somber. But I just want to get real, real. I know that there are some of you here who are in the middle of awful trials. Awful. Things that I have not been through. Some of you things that maybe next to no one in this congregation have been through. It's an awful storm. You're suffering and it hurts. 
and it's a living nightmare. You feel like you'd rather be on a wooden boat in the middle of a hurricane than deal with what you're having to go through. It would hurt less and be over quicker, at least. And I believe that this text speaks something to you right now. Not just to look forward and see how Christ has saved you from the wrath of God and that heaven is your home, but I believe that there's something that this speaks to you right now in the middle of your trial. And here's what it says. Jesus cares for you. Many people think that following Jesus means that there will be no storms in life. But in this text, we, we see that it is because of the disciples doing what Jesus says that they are in the storm. Remember verses, verses 35 and 36? It was Jesus' idea to sail to the other side of the lake. He orchestrated the whole thing so that he might display his glory and incite his disciples to believe. Maybe the storm you currently find yourself in is not like Jonah's, where Jonah was running from God and being disciplined by God for it. Rather, you're faithfully following Jesus. You love the Savior. You know that you sin. You're not perfect, but you repent. You love Jesus. You trust him. You're not aware of any grievous sin that you're harboring that God might be chastising you for. And if you were aware, you would repent. And yet here is this awful storm you find yourself in. And in the midst of this storm, maybe you've begun to think like the disciples did that day. And you cry out, Jesus, do you not care that I am perishing? Do you not care? You look at other people who, who it seems that God has blessed and has given an easy life. And then you look at yourself and your situation and you think he must not care. He has abandoned me to die at sea. You think that maybe Jesus has favorites. You wouldn't say it out loud, but you think it in your heart. Maybe he has favorites. And that maybe you're just an annoying stepchild to him. You're just not one of his favorites. And you think, does he care? Because it certainly feels like he doesn't. Please, lift up your head and listen to me. He cares. If you only knew how much that he cares. That day when the disciples asked that same question, they were not thinking clearly. They didn't understand what they were asking. And I think that when we ask that same question, the same is true of us. I mean, I mean think about it. Jesus, do you care? Think about that day. The fact that Jesus was in the boat with them is proof that he cared. And I, I don't mean that he was in the storm with them and spiritually he is in the storm with us, though that is certainly true and we could draw something from that. But what I mean is the fact that Jesus was in the boat is proof that he cares. Follow my reasoning. Why was he in the boat? Because he was doing public ministry. Why was he doing public ministry? Because he had come into the world being sent by God to do the work of saving his people. The fact that Jesus was in the boat means that he is on earth and he came to earth to redeem his people. The fact that he was in the boat proves that he cared for his disciples because he had come to earth to die for them. Christian, hear me. The fact that you know the name of Jesus, the fact that you know who he is, is proof that he cares for you. 
the fact that you have a Bible that tells you about him and what he has done is proof that he cares for you. The fact that he came to earth, took a human body to himself, and marched forward all his life toward the cross is proof that he cares for you. The fact that he bore the wrath of God in your place on the tree is proof that he cares for you. The fact that he was forsaken by God in your place so that you might never be forsaken is proof that he cares for you. The fact that he promises to be with you forever and also sustain you through this life is because he cares. My beloved brothers and sisters, know that he cares. He has proven this. He laid his life down for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He was raised for you. He has saved you so that you could know him and enjoy him forever. Of course he cares. Of course he cares. We don't always know why he allows us to endure storms. It's not always apparent to us. But one thing is settled and certain forever. He cares. He cares. Now, then the, the question we have to answer is the point of this text then that Jesus will get us out of every storm like he did on the Sea of Galilee that day? No. No. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. I don't know what he will do. He has not revealed that to us in his word. But this text does tell us that Jesus loves us even in the midst of the storms of life. He cares. And it teaches us that we can trust him. We can lean on him. And why is that? Why can we lean on him? Because of the first point that we made. He is the sovereign God over the storm. Because of the answer to verse 41, he is the son of God and he cares for you. The point of this text is not that Jesus is going to rescue you out of every storm immediately when you pray and never allow you to suffer. Rather, this text teaches us about the Jesus who is in the boat with us. That's what this text reminds us of. That the Jesus who is in the boat with us is the one in whom we can trust completely because he is the one and only almighty God and he actually cares. Again, I don't know why you're in the current storm that you find yourself. Maybe he's placed you in the storm so that you might grow and learn to trust in him as the hymn teaches us, I ask the Lord that I might grow. Give that a read sometime. Maybe he wants you to grow. Maybe he's placed you in the storm so that you might be broken down and rebuilt more in his image. Maybe he's placed you in the storm so that you might be an example to your brothers and sisters to show them how godly people suffer in faith. I don't know why you're in the storm, but regardless, we know that he has not abandoned us in our trials. He has good things in mind for us even in the suffering. Just listen. Why would he abandon us now and refuse to do good for us if he already paid such a high price to save us? It doesn't make sense. He cares. His design is our good and his glory, and he is sovereign over the storm. We can trust him. I found this to be a very encouraging thought as I considered the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus The storm will lift if 
and when the Lord of the storm says, peace be still. He is sovereign over it. It will lift if and when he says so. And with that knowledge, that knowledge might make all the difference for us as we endure the trial. Because we can endure so long as we know who has foreordained it. Who calls the shots for what we're going through and who cares for us. The person is one and the same. And that helps us to endure. The one who rules the seas has sent the storm. And he is almighty God who bends low to hear and care for you. I can't stress this enough. The truth of Jesus caring or not caring about you is not displayed in whether or not he lets the storm come or whether or not or how he calms the storm. That does not determine whether or not the Lord Jesus loves you. The fact that he has come to earth and saves you, saved you is proof that he cares for you. The fact that he has blessed you in so many other ways, if you will take a moment to look around at your life, is proof that he loves you. You can trust him. Who else are you going to trust? He is the only God. Lean on him with everything that you've got. Now we come to our final heading, and I've already kind of walked all over it. Jesus invites us to trust him. I've walked over it pretty good. We're going to do it again. By a rebuke in verses 40 and 41, Jesus invites us to believe. Let's read them. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus poses this question. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He poses that question to his disciples after they've shown a lack of faith and they're panicking in the storm and accusing him of not caring. I think he's saying here, have you seen my miracles? Have you heard my teaching? Have you been with me so long and yet you still don't believe? You still don't really understand who I am. The disciples still don't get it. Even after being with Jesus for over a year now, they still don't really understand just who he is. That's why they ask the question, who then is this? They're not ignorant completely of who he is. They know that he's king. They believe the kingdom has come in him, but they don't really fully understand. They just don't fully get it. They don't understand he's the sovereign God and that he cares for his people. Do you? Do you really understand who he is? Do you really understand that he cares? I think that maybe we don't, or to be fair, we, we do, but we forget. We forget. If we remembered who he is, we would cling to him. And we would trust him. And we would never accuse him in our hearts of not caring. If we really understood who he is. We would never think that he is far from us. We would never think that he's left us to die in the storm. And furthermore, if we really understood who he is and really remembered at all times, we would be convinced that even if we die, it is better to die at sea and have Jesus than to live on the land without him. If we really understood who he is. So I've said it again, but I want us to get it into our hearts. We can trust him for salvation and eternity, certainly. But right now, for our everyday lives, we can trust him 
because he is almighty God and he cares for us. So the question is, will you? Will you trust in the one who has power over the storm to bring it and to calm it as he sees fit? Verse 41 ends with a rhetorical question, which is really an invitation for us to respond in faith. Who then is this? Who do you say that he is? Will you trust him? Will you trust him for both salvation and your life on earth? And I I beg that you would do so because he is God Almighty and he actually cares for you, Christian. Trust him. Let's pray. Our great God who loves us and as I've said a thousand times this evening cares for us. We thank you for this great reminder in your word of who you are. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We thank you that even should you let storms come, even should darkness seem to hide your face, we can rest that you love us. You've proven it to us. You've given us your oath. You've covenanted with us by your blood. You will sustain us. You will help us. You will not abandon us. And you have power to save. You are almighty God. Plant that truth deep in our hearts, Lord, that we might be encouraged to persevere through life. We love you. We thank you for looking upon us, worms and wretched sinners, and being so kind. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.